Hello, and you are listening to Scar Joe A Gogo, the podcast where I chronicle and dissect the films of Scarlett Johansson in chronological order. I'm Luke, and this week I am talking about Scoop. Just to yawn, for I must love celebrity. We'll watch the screen, what can we glean from her career trajectory? Cause she'd prefer if you'd refer to her as Miss Johansson. Don't be a jerk to Miss Johansson. Respect her work. She starts off really small and then she grows, she grows, she grows, she grows. Let's see how far she goes. Scarjo go. The Muse, defined as the goddess or the power regarded as inspiring a poet, artist, thinker, or the like. And the concept of a muse was certainly one of the foremost things on my mind when sitting down to watch Scoop. Woody Allen's follow-up to Matchpoint, which also starred Scarlett Johansson. So the immediate question was, is Scarlett Johansson Woody Allen's muse? Now, upon researching this, the two of them have vehemently denied this in interviews. Woody says, it is silly. She's in no way my muse, but she's one of the great American actresses. Scarlett, around the time of Vicky Cristina Barcelona, goes on to say, I'm not his muse. Every single junket that we've done so far, we always get the muse thing, and we always say, no, it's not that way. Woody and I both appreciate how wonderful it is to work with your friends, and it's fun, and we always have a great time when we do it. We entertain each other, we understand each other, and we poke each other. Not, I assume, poking each other in the way that I, a puerile Australian, might have a little quiet chuckle at. But uh, my hypothesis going into this is that the other thing that they do is indulge each other. There's no question watching the film that they enjoy being around each other and that they kind of egg each other on, creating a relationship that's quite personal but also quite impenetrable at times for us as the audience. So perhaps they shy from the term use because that provides too much pressure. Perhaps it's considered to openly invest in a single person to be a creative dead end, or maybe they are each embarrassed to give the other so much import in terms of uh, their career or their interests or their enthusiasm. But I don't understand why, as Woody claims, that the idea of a muse in this instance is silly. You know, there is a reason that all these people watching the film draw that conclusion. I certainly think that he has a vested interest in her. And it becomes quite clear that he wrote this film for her. And uh, there's no break between Matchpoint and Scoop. He hasn't worked with anyone else in between these two films. Scarlett Johansson is absolutely on his mind. And I, as regular listeners will know, absolutely loved Matchpoint. But my question is, as we start to break down Scoop, is leading the muse along, forcing the muse into a film so quickly, as opposed to being inspired or letting this happen naturally, is that to the detriment of the film? Because when we last left Scarlett, she was on the island where director Michael Bay was doing what he does best. He was selling the product. So through the art of Bayvention, a term we coined at the time, he had recast Scarlett as a very plausible action hero. And using his patented sheen, I think he also went about the business of really elevating her to that epic, untouchable, glam movie goddess status. And now Woody Allen has the task of getting in there and bringing her back to basics and bringing her back to Earth. And in a way, stripping her of all that glamour and epicness that Michael Bay worked so hard to create. The Island really was a potential turning point for where her career would go. And I I think it certainly sowed the seeds for the action roles that we'll see later on. But Woody Allen, who also clearly has designs on Scarlet, wants to lead her down this little cul-de-sac first. I also wonder if the muse thing and denying the muse is, is just a way of protecting himself. I mean, certainly his interactions and um, attractions to younger women is something that's constantly under the microscope. So, I, I mean, you know, they both are denying it. They know more about it than uh, you or I do. 
you would deny it, right? Like, you don't want to be embarrassed in, in front of Scarlett. You don't want to be like, oh, yeah, she's my world. I want to, you know, create this wonderful art for her because I, I love her to death and I want to work with her and I want to spend every moment of my time with her. No, you play it cool if you would yell. And you go, yeah, no, we just have fun. And uh, fun is apparently the catalyst for Scoop. Um, I read that Woody felt that this was an opportunity to showcase what he saw as untapped comedy potential of Scarlett Johansson. Now, you and I, if you've listened to all these shows, have um, dissected every single role she's done, even from a child. And it's actually very rare for her to play a broad comedic role. Normally, um, her humour is the sort of thing that we see in Ghost World, kind of uh, wry, sarcastic and understated. The only time that I can think of where we saw her really playing an, an overtly, really out there comedy role was in My Brother the Pig when she was only about 16 or 17, and I still think that was uh, her worst performance to date. Bear in mind, the director of that film was not Woody Allen, it was a America's Funniest Home Videos director, so um, I think that film might have been doomed to fail in the first place. But Woody here, he sees something funny in her, he sees something while he was working on Matchpoint, and he feels like he needs to put her up front and centre in what essentially is a comedy caper. And when you talk about their friendship and the way that they enjoy working with each other, I absolutely 100% buy into this story. I believe that she is a funny person when she's in the right circumstances. If you watch the B-roll footage for something like The Winter Soldier, you'll see her having a lot of fun behind the scenes pulling faces, doing fun stuff, and, uh, you know, all her co-stars always talk very highly of her, so I imagine that there was a lot of fun. He obviously really wanted to do something with her again, and um, have you ever found yourself in that kind of situation? I know through even my own small creative endeavours, there are times when you really, really enjoy working with someone. It's just so fantastic. It was unexpected. You really like this person. You both had a great time, and then suddenly... That desire to work with them again becomes so overwhelming that you rush into the next thing. You kind of manufacture a a reason, a project to do something. And you two are having so much fun and you like each other so much and you're both like snowballing with these ideas. You're like, oh, let's do this, let's do this. And you're building each other up. But the problem is it stops being objective. It becomes about this insular world that the two of you or three of you or however many it is have created. And you're not seeing it from that outside perspective. And because you're rushing into it, because um, the inspiration for doing this and the catalyst for doing this project is the chance to work with each other again, as opposed to the fact that you had this really burning story to tell and this was the right, just happened to be the best person for the role. It it creates a sort of um, unfortunate situation where the finished product means more to those people that made it than the people that view it. And I certainly think that there is something about Scoop which is a mess. I think there are huge missteps through Scoop. And we're going to go in there and and sort of pull that apart one by one. And that is a huge disappointment to me because I really liked Woody Allen's work. Uh, I was in love with Matchpoint and and I was surprised that there were no ciphers for Woody Allen. There were no characters that took on his stereotypical characteristics. I thought there was a great economy of story. Um, I thought the script was really sharp. I thought the directing was really sharp. I thought there was nothing indulgent about it. I thought everything was really well considered and well put together. So I was real. I knew that Scoop hadn't had the same kind of uh, praise, but I was really hoping for something different. And what we get instead is Woody Allen grabbing at his muse and going, not only are we going to do this again, but this time I'm coming with you. I'm going to be on screen with you and we're going to have a really great adventure, which is fun for them, but is it great for us? So the film came out in 2006. Uh, Let's get right into the beginning of it. Um, As we go along, you'll hopefully unravel why I don't think it works. Um, It opens to white titles on a black background, set to classical music, very understated, classic Woody Allen stuff. She is third billed this time, thanks to goddamn alphabetical billing. Hugh Jackman sneaking in there just in front of Scarlett Johansson. Uh, This is Australia Week on the podcast as well. If you listen to the other podcasts, they've all been Australia themed. So uh, the fact that Australian Hugh Jackman is going to be in here as well is kind of exciting. Uh, how successful that is, we will soon find out. But uh, look, this film's set in London, and it opens at a funeral for newspaper man Joe Strombel. 
And uh, later at the pub, we see his colleagues reminiscing about what a great newspaper man he was. He, he was a reporter of great integrity and everybody uh, really admired him. And then we have this incredibly strange tonal shift because we cut to the uh, Grim Reaper, the actual Grim Reaper on a boat in the fog ferrying the dead. Now, it's shot like a play. It looks like a play. I actually thought the characters were watching a play for a second because of the way this looks. It's very much a set, shrouded in darkness, smoke machine. It's really odd. Um, and that's already your first leap of faith with this film, is sort of accepting that. Now, I don't have an issue with that. I think it's interesting. I love that Woody Allen is not bound by any sort of really conventional or constrictive storytelling ideas if he's got ideas for a story. And I guess, you know, this guy's directed 51 films. You're going to use these ideas. You're going to push them out there. And it's got this weird sort of Brechtian thing about it. I think because it looks like a play, you know, we realise that it's all a bit tongue-in-cheek, that we're dealing with a reality that is very flexible. And you're bringing in mythology again, which I think is interesting when we started this conversation talking about muses. But anyway, Joe Strombel is Ian McShane, uh, and he's vainly trying to get Death's attention. And um, he talks to her when he doesn't get anything out of Death. He talks to a recently deceased lady on the boat, who uh, turns out to be this guy called Peter Lyman, who's played by Hugh Jackman. Uh, she's his secretary, and she was poisoned. And her tip-off to the dead Ian McShane is that Hugh Jackman is actually the tarot card serial killer who's been killing prostitutes in London. So it's this massive scoop, something that Ian McShane, when he was alive, he would have loved to have put this story out. He would have thought it was absolutely fantastic, but he's dead, it's too late. What are we going to do? So, that's your setup. We go back to the real world and the Dorchester Hotel in London where we first see journalism student, American journalism student, Scarlett Johansson. Now this is what I was talking about with Woody Allen really trying to bring her down to earth here. This isn't Scarlett the glamorous movie star, even though obviously she's still very attractive. But um, he's going for more of a dorky, average, um, American, every girl. She's got the hair down, she's wearing glasses, he's really playing down the sexiness. And we can see straight away that this is Scarlett not going for that, you know, deep inner truth we've seen in some other things, but playing a character. She's overly perky, overly enthusiastic, very American, very jittery, and she's haranguing celebrity Mike Tingsley for an interview. And he's really not impressed. And my initial fear when seeing this first scene, um, even though there's something kind of infectious about watching her do this, I think she's quite adorable. But my fear was, oh, is she going to overdo this? You know, when it's overt comedy, that's always the danger here. And uh, it turns out that Mike, this older man, is a director. And he brings, finally, you know, says, okay, let's do this interview. He brings her back to his hotel, uh, into the hotel room, and starts giving her scotch, which she uh, drinks very quickly, and she talks a lot, and she overshares. Certainly not a lot of self-awareness for this character at all. She's all nervous energy. And, um, you know, she finishes a drink. He offers her another one. And then we have this really abrupt cut to her back home in a bathroom. She's staying with her English friend Vivian, who's around her age, uh, and Vivian's family. And she's talking to Vivian and bemoaning the fact that she slept with this older director and didn't even get the interview. And when she asks, well, what was the sex like? She says, well, I don't even remember the sex because I was so drunk. Now, um, this is problematic for me right from the beginning. It's something that sort of leaves a weird taste in your mouth because... Uh, First, I mean, it's a weird twist on Scarlet, and interesting. She's doing something different. She usually plays a deeper, smarter character than this. Um, I think it's interesting that even though he's put on a character for her, and it's some, a character that doesn't have a lot of her own personal traits, uh, whereas I think some of her best characters seem to be like her personal traits being exaggerated, she's still an outsider, though, still an outsider looking in. Someone on the fringes, somebody who wants to be part of a community, somebody who wants to... Uh, be part of an industry, I suppose, and um, is the odd duck out. She's the one that um, doesn't quite mesh with everyone else. And I feel like we could say that for just about every role that we've seen her in. Um, and, you know, just to sort of show that she's on the fringes here as well, she's got that tomboyish look again, um, you know, the, the downplaying the sexiness, blue check pajama pants, a, a drab grey robe. 
in fact, her um, sexuality would be almost non-existent were it not for the fact that she's wearing a, a tight white shirt and, and does have enormous boobs. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the other thing, of course, the more problematic thing, especially in 2015, is that Mike Tinsley is this director, is this older guy, he makes films, he's not especially attractive, and yet Scarlett's friend Vivian talks about how much of a genius this guy is and how she wouldn't mind having sex with him uh which makes me think god is this like you know obviously woody allen wrote this it feels uncomfortably like a thinly veiled woody allen analog i don't know how tongue-in-cheek that is but there's also this just more importantly this sort of horrible rape context like this idea of being so out of it and he's predatory. He plies her with alcohol. He's not interested in what she's saying. He's constantly giving her drinks as soon as she finishes one. And he has sex with her, and she doesn't even remember the act. And the weird thing about this is it's played for comedy. It's like, oh, what a crazy loser I am. Here was my big chance, and I blew it. I can't get anything right. And in this world where, you know, all these stories about your Bill Cosby's and all those kind of things, it's like... How is this a great introduction to a character? Like, I just don't understand what we're supposed to feel for her. I feel bad for her. I'm not laughing. I'm just like, oh my God, what a horrible situation. And guess what? It's going to get worse. So they end up taking Vivian's little brother to a variety stage show. Uh, And meanwhile, while they're sitting in the audience, we cut back to Death's Boat and Ian McShane takes his opportunity when Death's not looking, I assume. I don't know, we never see Death's face, he wears a big hood. But Ian McShane jumps off the boat and swims off into the the sea. Then we cut back to the stage show, and Woody Allen himself appears on stage as a a sort of, um, well, he's playing Woody Allen. He's a bumbling, neurotic stage magician. And he pulls the very shy, average-looking Scarlet up onto the stage as a volunteer. And she um, sways nervously as he talks to her and plays with her hands and sort of looks around and mutters things. Um, I actually, I've got to admit, I mean, I was endeared by seeing her so goofy and shy. I think that's a nice quality. I I'm actually find her very intriguing when she's not playing the sexy glam role. And in fact, I think her being that big, epic, sexy, femme fatale movie star is often the least interesting choice. So I can certainly understand the impetus for both Woody and Scarlett wanting to do this. Um, He starts touching her a bit, touching her arm a lot, keeps grabbing onto her, and then he puts her into the magic box. And she was never seen again, and that's the end of our series. A dark ending, didn't it? Who knows what uh, movies she would have made, what career choices if she hadn't gone into that magic box. And uh, Woody Allen was shot and killed by police about three days later. No, of course that didn't happen. Uh, Instead, she goes into the box. And you're not going to believe this if you haven't seen the film. Like, you look at this film. You look at... I'd never seen this film. You look at the DVD cover. You've got Scarlett standing opposite Hugh Jackman. And you go, okay, this is a light, witty, romantic comedy. No, this is dorky Scarlett with glasses inside a magic box. And the dead Ian McShane, the ghost of Ian McShane, materializes inside the box with her. Scarlett completely overacts in shock and he gives this chance. He's crossed over to our plane. He's only got very limited time in the land of the living. He gives her the big scoop about the tarot card killer. He gives her the name Peter Lyman, which is Hugh Jackman for our purposes, and then he disappears. Then now Woody gets her out again. He's got a very tight grip on her arm again as she uh, looks very confused, just as confused as the audience probably is at this point in time. I just say as well, I really notice him continually grabbing her arm. I remember seeing a show about body language many, many years ago. And that sort of spot between your shoulder and your elbow is really considered a neutral touching zone. I mean, this is where somebody can tap you, touch you or whatever, and it doesn't mean anything. I don't know if Woody Allen saw that same show, but he's really going to town on this neutral zone. He's having a holiday in Switzerland. He is all over her. And a friend of the show, Courtney, who has appeared on many of the other podcasts and is a, um, I guess, a muse of mine in a way because uh, we do a lot of creative projects together and I photograph her. We've watched a lot of Doctor Who together and a lot of old Doctor Who. And uh, something that we kept noticing was that the doctors uh, love that neutral touching zone. They are always grabbing their companions by their arms, shaking them around while they talk to them. Uh, Look out for that. You'll never be able to unsee it. Now you've heard that. 
This I really liked. I really love this shot. She goes home and she starts to Google the tarot card killer to try and get a sense of what all this is about. And there's these close-ups of her face lit by the computer screen with the glasses. You can see the screen in the glasses. And it's so wonderful. Like, um, you know, she's intense, she's focused, but she's licking her lips and she's playing with her retainer. There's this sort of ongoing joke about how her family are all dental hygienists and things and that if she hadn't uh, pursued journalism, that's where she would end up. So um, her there clicking her retainer and everything is just, it's a great series of shots. Love the image. It's something we haven't seen with her before and it really does work. So she ends up going back to Woody Allen as he uh, practices behind the scenes and she really wants to know about this spirit. She wants to know what's happened in the box. And um, this is where I make the connection that perhaps I'm a little bit slow, but Scarlett Johansson is playing Woody Allen in this film. So when you see the two of them standing next to each other in this sequence, she's got this deliberate hunched over posture which matches his. They're both kind of the same size. Both have glasses, both are gesturing a lot with their hands, both are talking really fast and overlapping each other. It's kind of like they're really trying to out-neurotic each other. Uh, Woody's is effortless though, of course, that is who he is. It's more of a stretch for Scarlett. This is something that she has to uh, put on and kind of uh, push a lot more. So it doesn't always feel completely natural for me. It's interesting, it's different, but it's also problematic. He said himself that he saw something funny in her, something untapped. He wanted to give her this role. And I wish he could have shown us that genuine, funny Scarlett Johansson that he saw behind the scenes of Matchpoint, because that's not what we're seeing in this film. If there was something genuine and interesting and natural and funny about her, he's not showing it. Instead, she's getting to pretend to be him. And to simply settle for that comedy, being her being this broad caricature of him, seems to me like a missed opportunity. Anyway, he lets her go back in the box, touches her arm a lot again. Uh, Noe and McShane this time, everyone's confused, he thinks she's crazy, but then suddenly, bam, Ian McShane turns up and he gives her even more info. So, uh, Hugh Jackman is the son of a lord, he's the killer, and he murdered short-haired brunette prostitutes, like at least 12 of them or something, which seems awfully specific, also seems incredibly easy to avoid. She can't just go to the police or anything, she has to get the story, she has to get the proof. And then suddenly Death, the Grim Reaper, turns up right there in front of everybody in the theatre uh, and claims Ian McShane by wrapping his robe about him and then just disappearing, like he totally Obi-Wans into the floor. So there's our really weird premise, which I guarantee if you just looked at the DVD cover, you would never go, oh yeah, Ian McShane dies and then comes back from the dead in a magic box and gives Scarlet the clues to etc, etc. So little Nancy Drew Scarlet now is on the case. And um, for some reason, she really wants Woody Allen's help. Now she doesn't know this guy. She doesn't know his character. She knows nothing about him apart from being up on stage with him once and this brief scene that we've just seen. Uh, but he has. she's decided that he is going to be her partner in the investigation and they are going to spend the rest of the movie in each other's pockets. And he keeps touching her in the scene as well. Um, but we know the reason, don't we? The reason is that Woody Allen likes Scarlett Johansson and wants to work with her. He wants to actually share the scenes with her and perform with her. And so now these two of them are stuck together just because they have a fun working relationship, not because it services the story in any reasonable way at all. And that's where it's his fault, isn't it? I mean, he's the director, he's the writer. Of course she's going to do his film. Like, why would you not? She had a great experience with Matchpoint. Matchpoint was a fantastic film. He's got this great pedigree. If he comes to you and says, we're going to do another one, of course you are going to do it. You're going to be excited about it. He's giving her a chance to play in a genre that she doesn't normally get to play. This is fantastic, but the impetus is on him to have a story and a character and something developed enough to make it worthwhile. You might think I'm being harsh on it at the moment, and so far, actually, not so bad, but it falls apart as it continues. So um, Scarlet and Woody, they head to some offices to look for Jackman. Uh, Scarlet pulls some faces here during this bit, which I swear we have not seen since Manny and Lowe. Just that really childlike, playful, 
quality that um, really sort of I'm focusing and I'm overthinking and I'm puzzling over stuff. There was just this minute where I was like, I can see that child Scarlet in here and we have not seen her for a while. We certainly, you know, people like Michael Bay are all about completely erasing that aspect of a character, but here it is. And I think that's probably closer to, to the real person. And Woody, man, he's still, he's grabbing those arms. You can sort of believe when he was up on stage and he, you know, had to grab her and uh, put her in a box, sure. But uh, now they're, you know, got this new friendship. They're out on the street. Still keeps getting up in that neutral touching zone. So um, Vivian ends up uh, getting Scarlet into this posh gentleman's club with Woody. Vivian was the friend, if you recall. And finally, we see our mate, bloody Aussie legend, True Blue, Fair Dinkum, Hugh Jackman is swimming in the pool. So Scarlet loses the glasses. She reveals her one-piece red swimsuit underneath. She gets into the pool and she pretends to drown. This is how she's going to get Hugh Jackman's attention. And he ends up coming and rescuing her and um, actually pushes her out of the pool by sort of uh, heaving her bum over the uh, edge of it. And uh, disappointing, Hugh's got a really odd English accent here. You would think as an Australian that an English accent's not too big a stretch. English colony. We watch a lot of English TV. But he struggles with it. It feels unnatural. And then as the story continues, there are times where he just goes almost full Australian. It's kind of crazy. And I'll say it now as well. I mean, I would think the mark of a great Woody Allen film would be the fact that all the characters are interesting. He's a writer, he's a director. You would think that everybody has something interesting to do. Hugh Jackman is just a cipher in this thing. He's a very bland, upper-class character that doesn't have any real personality beyond that. And that only, for me, continues to underline the fact that this is a vehicle for Woody and Scarlet to go and have a great time, and everybody else is kind of uh, superfluous to it. Anyway, let's be honest, let's be a little bit Scarlet bro Hanson for a moment. Scarlet does look really great in this swimsuit, sitting by the side of the pool. She pretends that she's someone else. She gives a fake name. He seems completely smitten by her straight away and invites her to a garden party. And uh, she says, sure, but because she's really going to be doing this investigation while she's there, she wants to bring along her father, which, of course, is Woody Allen. He's going to pretend to be somebody else as well. Note that the film really wants to have this both ways, like this idea that she's just this average person, that she's goofy, that she overshares, that she's, um, you know, uncomfortable in her own skin, but then at the same time wants to make you believe that she's this gorgeous, stunning uh, woman, that this guy who could have anything he wants is instantly in love with. And surely it's not just because she took off her glasses, because she's going to be wearing her glasses for the rest of it, so... The glasses aren't part of this persona. This isn't a, a Clark Kent Superman thing. She's got the glasses on again and it's business as normal. Notice as well, goddamn, Woody is such a close talker. Like the dialogue scenes with Woody and Scarlet are so claustrophobic. Like their lips almost just flapping against each other. It's crazy. Um, so they go to the Hugh Jackman estate. And guess what? Hugh Jackman's dad in this is Julian Glover, who you'll know as Pycelle in Game of Thrones, but you will also know him as uh, Donovan in Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade, and as General Veers in Empire Strikes Back. He is a cool cat. He's not really a cat. So Scarlet, she finally gets some alone time with Jackman. Uh, she overtalks again. She asks him about tarot, which he said, well, I know nothing about tarot. Uh, she admires his teeth. He avoids questions about his recently dead secretaries or looking very suspicious. Uh, more close talking, this time from Hugh and Scarlet. He goes to kiss her, but she moves away. She doesn't let him. Um, which, you know, fair enough. She thinks, right, that he's killed 12 prostitutes. So why would you want to kiss this guy? One, could be a killer. Two, you don't know where that mouth has been. And she snorts when she laughs here, which again, nice little touch. I loved it. I think it was good. I just think uh, Woody needed to pull her back. I feel he was too close to this. Like, he should have had a more critical eye. That's what I loved about uh, Matchpoint. It was just he knew exactly where to pitch those performances. He knew when he needed to move on. Like, it's a long film, but it's economic, whereas this is all indulgence. And I just feel like when she's your best friend and you're both having, like, this great time and you're on set with her and you're babbling about all this neurotic nonsense 
then you're not watching her performance and you're not making the best film that you could. Imagine if Woody Allen ever listened to this. He'd be like, what the fuck do you know about? I made 51 fucking films. Won all these Oscars. Made all this money. And you're like this dude in Australia probably living in like a a tin can by Billabong telling me that um, I don't know how to like, like it's not the first fucking time that I directed myself in my own film. Annie Hall ring a bell? Fuck yourself. That's probably what he's thinking. So days pass and the tarot killer strikes again. You guessed it, he killed a short-haired brunette prostitute. And it was interesting as well because Hugh Jackman was unaccounted for at this time and could in theory have done it. But then she goes over to his house alone and this is such a weird tone. I understand that she needs to get some clues and she needs to solve this case. But I'm unsure already, does she genuinely like him? Or does she really think that he killed people? And is this short-haired brunette thing something that Woody Allen has only added to the script so that we're not going, get the fuck out of the house, don't be alone with this guy? Like, is it supposed to make us feel more comfortable as an audience because we go, oh, well, she's got long blonde hair. He's not going to kill her, even if he is the killer. She's safe. It's really strange. And he takes her into his secret locked instrument room. Um, I'm talking actual instruments, you know, French horn, Stradivarius. I'm not talking like... You know, come into my instrument room and I'll show you my spam banjo, I'm a tromboner, I'm a sexamophone, I'm a male organ, I'm a trouser flute, I'm a pants piccolo. I sub. Uh, and this time he does kiss her and leads her upstairs where we cut. Now, I gotta ask, I think this is a fair question at this stage. What are the motivations of any of these people? Meanwhile, Woody does his show, and Ian McShane, dead Ian McShane, didn't we just see him grabbed by the Grim Reaper? And I think when the Grim Reaper himself comes back and pulls you out of the land of the living and sucks you through the floor, that you're done. But no, he just casually walks back on stage to give Woody the numbers 16, 21, 12. That's going to be important, right? Well, back to Scarlet, who is now in a towel post-shower while Hugh lies in bed. So she has banged this guy that she thinks killed a dozen women because, well, obviously because, um, well, she had to have sex with him because, no, there is no fucking reason for her to do this. It's just crazy. I understand you want to, like, get to know him a bit more and snoop around and get some clues, but why is she having sex with him? Like, two things have to be happening here. She either has to believe that he killed these women, which is why she's pretending to be another person and investigating all this, or she has to be genuinely in love with him. But if that's the case, why is she pretending to be somebody else and snooping around his house? Like, it makes no sense. You couple this with the fact that she was uh, pretty much drugged and raped by the director at the beginning of the thing. It's creating this really horrible, muddy, hazy story. Well, I don't know what's what. So he goes downstairs, Hugh Jackman goes downstairs to scramble some eggs. I guess she's just should be hoping that he didn't fertilize any eggs and make any little killer babies. And um, I guess this means that she still does suspect him because she looks through his stuff and realizes that his mother was a brunette with short hair who he found difficult and he also says she was unfaithful. So then Scarlet gets all kind of standoffish again and leaves. But when she reports back to Woody, she's now thinking that Hugh's innocent and even thinking about dropping the whole case, the whole story. And then, but then she hears about the numbers, the, the 16, 21, 12, and, and now she goes, oh, well, that's the combination, obviously. Has to be the combination uh, to the instrument room. We've got to get in there and have a look around. Even though she did just get in there and have a look around. I don't know why she would think that, oh, well, that's the place where something exciting is. So she goes to a party at Hughes with Woody where there's more fast, close talking, lots of indulgent treading water between uh, far too few plot advancements in this part of the film. It's such a stark contrast to Match Point, which packed so many things into such a short amount of time. Woody sneaks downstairs, goes into the instrument room, fumbles around with the combination, gets himself locked in, then Scarlet has to go in with him afterwards. Um, there's more unnecessary time killing because he's forgotten the number again, and uh, then she has to go in there with him. I still have no idea why they were really desperate to get in there, what they're going to look for, what she thinks she's going to see that she didn't see the first time, why they don't think they're going to get caught when there are hundreds of servants and people around this party and they're down in this restricted 
area. And then it all has zero payoff. Like Q comes down and catches them, but they're outside suddenly. And um, they act like, oh no, nothing happened. I just wanted to show him around. Uh, we didn't even go in there. And then she goes and sleeps with Hugh again. So after all that back and forth about this music room, they didn't even do what they set out to do. And she's fucking him again, even though I thought she was now convinced that he's a killer again. And it's really this point in the film where I think, are you Woody Allen or are you Ashton Kutcher? Because you're punking me now, pal. You are like, it's like you're setting out to deliberately waste my time. But then after having sex with Hugh again, she sneaks downstairs again. This is no win for her because if he's innocent, she's going to completely fuck up the relationship. And if not, she's either going to get murdered or he's going to go to jail and she's going to have to live with the fact that she had lots of sex with a prostitute murderer. And then suddenly she finds tarot cards hidden in his instrument room. But, like, what are the odds of that? Why would she suddenly find that? Why did we need a huge scene with Woody Allen down there beforehand? Like, couldn't you have cut that whole thing? And she just sleeps with him, goes downstairs, tries the combination and finds the tarot cards. The end. Like, seriously, if you cut out all the nonsense in between, this would be a 21-minute film. It would be like a sitcom episode. And that would be plenty. But now, when she goes back to Woody to report back to him about this... You know, you'd think this was the smoking gun. Holy crap, I'm investigating the tarot card killer. I've just found tarot cards in his house. She downplays it. She doesn't think the tarot cards are proof of anything. So, which is it, Scarlet? Do you suspect him or not? Hugh buys her a charm bracelet for her birthday. She puts it on. I thought this was interesting, just if you're a Scarlet Johansson fan. Uh, she puts the charm bracelet on her hand or on her wrist in the same place that she has a real, ch- uh, well, a, a, a tattooed charm bracelet in real life huh how about that you never see it in the films though it's always covered up makeup it's amazing uh so yeah hugh's gonna go away for a couple of days which i guess is gonna give us some time to snoop figure things out um scarlet goes completely over the top at being visited by ian mcshane again so death is not doing his job very clearly and I don't know what it is, like if she's genuinely scared of Ian McShane, but he seems to bring out the worst in her. I wonder if they just didn't tell her when she was going to be uh, shooting with him and he just like suddenly materialised out of nowhere. Or maybe um, they made him like materialise in her trailer and stuff behind the scenes just to always keep her on her toes. Anyway, she, she freaks out. So um, Scarlett and Woody are then seen at a restaurant eating and talking about stuff that really is not important to the plot. I mean, these bits are really just a time for Woody Allen to talk about things that he's interested in and do his little stand-up routine. Like, this is him talking about the differences between US and London and all this sort of stuff. And Scarlett is just sitting quietly, eating cutely. And then she sees Hugh out the window. He's still here, the liar. He didn't go away for two days. This is a plot point completely rehashed from Matchpoint, where Reese Myers lied to Scarlett that he was going away for a few days and then she ran into him and saw that he hadn't. So, you know, and Matchpoint was only the last film. Is this a Woody Allen go-to that I can expect in lots of Woody Allen movies? This um, men lying to their women about where they're going and uh, I don't know. It feels like this was rushed and that the well is dry. So they pursue... Hugh, and they lose him, but soon there's an alarm on the street that a woman has been strangled by the tarot killer, and it was a short-haired brunette. And then that cuts to them talking over more food, and Scarlet says perhaps the most uh, understated line ever, perhaps we should have gone to the police earlier. But instead, they go to a leading newspaper man, played by Charles Dance, the brilliant Charles Dance, we've loved him recently in Game of Thrones as well. Uh, but he's not impressed at all by her potentially, uh, potentially, potentially libelous story. And why would he be? She has nothing. Woody Allen hasn't focused on the fact that she's a competent journalist at all. We haven't seen her doing any sort of journalism or real investigating. She's just been having sex with everybody. Like, what is her story about? Like, the size of his dick? I don't understand. There's just lots of tedious back and forth with them about nothing substantial. And then, after Dance has lectured her about all this and explained it for... Because obviously he has a lot of time on his hands, being this top newspaper man. He reveals, oh, by the way, police have already nabbed the killer. A handyman called Henry. 
So why did he listen to all that bullshit before telling them a story that is supposedly front page news everywhere? And again, this is borrowed from Matchpoint, like towards the end of Matchpoint, where that guy gives that big theory, I think this is what happened, this is why this guy is guilty, blah, 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 and the cop listens, 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 and goes, yeah, okay, but we caught the real killer already today. And you're like, fuck, again? So now she thinks that the killer has been caught. She returns to Hugh Jackman to tell her the truth about her identity. She tells him everything. She reveals that she's a student, that Woody Allen's not her father, and that she thought that Hugh Jackman was the tarot card killer. And he's actually charmed by it all. He's like, oh, you, how could you, mischievous American, wait till I tell all my crazy friends about it. They will slap their thighs in delight. And um, she makes it worse uh, by saying that she found the tarot cards in his instrument room. You know, she's like, I don't think you're the killer, but uh, why you got the tarot cards? And uh, he goes, oh, well, you know, they were a gift for you because you said that you liked them, which is true. You know, that, that, that was what happened. So then he starts kissing her again. Look, so obviously he doesn't care who she is. He just likes the look of her. Which again is weird, because she was supposed to be awkward and average, but to him she's the most beautiful woman in the world. Which is it, Woody Allen? Pick one. And then Woody tries to convince her that no, Hugh Jackman is the killer, I'm sure of it. Except Woody takes ten times longer than any normal person would in order to explain these theories. You know, so while I was impressed by Matchpoint's economy, this is the indulgent stereotype that I was worried about. And Scarlet just won't have a bar of it. She thinks Hugh Jackman can do no wrong. In the bedroom. And um, that's the thing. She's got no real agency here at all. If you look at her character, and she's the lead character of this film, she hasn't done anything right from the beginning. She's really just been bounced around and manipulated by these predatory men. Like, what are we supposed to think of her? Should we be rallying behind her? Should we feel sorry for her? I don't get it. The ghost of McShane turns up again. Death must have left the back door open. Tells Woody he's still convinced that Hugh Jackman did it, and then he disappears again. I mean, fucking Obi-Wan didn't come back this many times. Crazy. So now Woody is going around and questioning people. So it's a, is it his scoop? He's getting the scoop now. He's doing the investigating. He finds out about a dead prostitute who Hugh had the name of and who had a rich client called Peter who got her to dye and cut her hair. And Woody takes a really long time to get this info because he's very neurotic and he stutters and he tells lots of lies along the way and he goes winding down. You know, Woody's this guy, there's a straight path in front of him and he's like, and then he looks and sees some flowers in a field next to the path and he's like, and then he's like, oh, okay, back in the path. And then he sees like a, a rabbit go by and he's like, oh, the bunny rabbit. And he goes wandering off again and it's like, Woody, just fucking stay on task, pal. And then, like, after taking a really long time to get the info, he rings Scarlet up and takes a really long time to relay the exact same information to her that we just heard. And Scarlet is off with Hugh on a weekend away and talking on a rotary uh, dial phone for some reason. And uh, Hugh is listening in to all this, so it's all getting a little bit sinister. Actually, it sort of occurred to me here that is this like a really unfunny remake of So I Married an Axe Murderer? It kind of is. So... Woody goes back into the music room. I don't know how everybody keeps getting into this music room all the time. And he finds a key, and it turns out that the key that's hidden in the music room is the key to the dead hooker's apartment. Because he goes, he knows this because he goes straight to the apartment and tries the door. How did he know to do that? Um, magic, I suppose. Uh, he races to find Scarlet, who is out on a rowboat on a lake with Hugh. And I say racing, but it's, it's moving very slow, this car. And uh, then the car crashes off screen and Woody Allen dies. So Hugh tells Scarlett that he is going to drown her. He reveals that he is the killer and uh, he's revealing this because he knows that Woody has figured it all out. He doesn't know that Woody's just died in a car crash. And Hugh had killed the woman because of blackmail. She was blackmailing him. So he mimicked the tarot card killer's motive by getting her to dye her hair. But of course, Scarlet never really figured out any of this or got the titular scoop. It was all Woody, who's now dead. And rather than cold clock this dick with an oar, she just sits there, does nothing, and except yells for help but they're on a private lake and he's going to get her and she politely listens to all this exposition and then she falls overboard in a struggle and looks to be drowning 
And he's like, oh great. And he goes back to shore. Now, I'm not a dummy. I didn't sleep through this right. She was just pretending to drown back in that earlier scene. Like, we all know that. Surely Hugh Jackman, this educated man, knows that as well because she's revealed that everything she did was a lie to get closer to him to find out more about him. So that really cliched way of getting his attention when they were at the pool, surely he knows that 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 was a fake, that she wasn't really drowning in this one metre deep pool. So Hugh goes back to the house and calls for help on the rotary phone. And I understand now why there's a rotary phone. It's because everything in this film takes five times as long as it should. And um, yeah, sure enough, that is the twist. She shows up all wet as the cops arrive and goes, hey, guess what? I can swim. In fact, I'm a really good swimmer. But we all knew that, right? And Hugh Jackman is an idiot if he didn't know that. That is just crazy. And now Charles Dance is impressed with her report finally. He's all, what a scoop. He congratulates her on what he sees to be one of the best bits of investigative journalism ever even though she didn't really do anything. And then the final scene is Woody on the death boat. Uh, Turns out he crashed the car because he wasn't used to driving on the left side of the road. Uh, The UK, am I right? Um, And then he banters some bullshit with some other dead passengers for a good few minutes until the credits roll. No scoop. No. You're a bad scoop. So... In conclusion, I mean, fuck, what can I say? I hope they had fun. I hope this was a great experience for the two of them. I hope they had a blast. I hope he enjoyed working with her again, but I really fucking wish that he'd waited. I just wish he'd waited until he had this just killer story that was unique, different, and that he didn't write specifically for her, something that he just needed to tell and then went, hey, you know who's going to be amazing for this? Scarlett Johansson. I'm going to give her a call because... You know, I'm not surprised they want to work together. But make it worthwhile. Make it something special. And I am still definitely looking forward to uh, Vicky Cristina Barcelona, which is their third collaboration and is a bit further down the track. Because, hey, look, best two out of three. If uh, two of them are good and one of them wasn't so good, I'm happy with that. Just disappointing. I mean, look at Lost in Translation, you know, as something which has an older guy hanging out with this younger girl. And... You know, just the fact that you've got Sofia Coppola as the mediator there, someone who has written these characters from her own personal experience, then cast the right people, and then those right people find something really organic and magical throughout the course of that film, which turns it into a very memorable film. Um, That's good. That's organic. That feels right. Whereas... You know, it would be a whole different thing if Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson were like, oh, we have fun working together. Let's let's write this thing. Let's do this thing where we get to do this and this and this. It's like, um, fuck, this is an obscure reference, but I love Fish Called Wanda. What a great cast. What a great story. Like, what an amazing team. You've got those four actors, Kevin Kline, John Cleese, Michael Palin, Jamie Lee Curtis, just fucking firing. They're so good. And then you've got the same four people and John Cleese as the writer, director going... That was so much fun. Let's do Fierce Creatures. Let's all go back together and and do it again. Man, you can understand the desire, but the results just aren't there. It's just not right. So um, normally at this point I say, why was she cast? We know why she was cast. We know why she did it. We've covered that completely. So just a little bit of housekeeping now. Scarcabulary. What is the new word that we learnt to add to our Scarlet Studies lexicon? I'm actually going to stick with my alternate title for this episode, and that is the phrase, leading the muse. You guys, you guys can deny this muse thing as much as you want, and it's all fucking semantics at this point, isn't it? You obviously, like, you inspire each other, you have fun with each other, that, that's great. But this time he's forced it, and he's pulled that muse kicking and screaming into a story that needed to be in the oven just that little bit longer. And what were her three greatest feats in this film? What are the three things we are going to remember her for? One, I do want to give her props for downplaying the sexy femme fatale role and playing a goofy, amusing, approachable character. Didn't love the film, but I love the experiment. There's something very endearing there, which I think if the balance was just right, it would be really good. I feel like, too, on a similar note, 
I want to praise that little touch of Manny from Manny and Lowe that I saw in this. It's that playful naiveness, that sort of childlike focus. I think that's important to keep, like to remember where you came from and be true to who you are. And I think there is the danger when you start doing Michael Bay films and things that you're sort of twisted into this untouchable Hollywood icon. And I never want little Manny to be completely gone. And three, goddamn playing with that retainer, clicking her teeth in the glasses. I love that so much. Such a wonderful shot. I hope there's a cap of it somewhere so I can uh, include it with this episode. All right. So next week we are doing The Black Dahlia, which I have also never seen. I'm intrigued by it. I like the look of the poster. It's kind of mysterious and uh, interesting, so saddle up. Let's give it a go. Very intrigued about that. And thank you for listening, of course. Uh, Thanks for your support. Um, I really appreciate people listening to this show. It is the show out of the three shows I do, which is still the youngest. Um, I don't get a massive amount of feedback. So when I do hear from people that they're enjoying it and listening to it, I'm always thrilled because it's kind of crazy sometimes. I have to pinch myself and go, I have talked about Scarlett Johansson's performances for, what, about 20 hours now, which is just nuts to think that this uh, body of work exists. And kind of nuts, too, to think that anybody would be interested in listening to it. So you can always rate, review on iTunes. Easiest thing to do is to go to fruitlesspursuits.com Uh, Then you'll find the Book Was Better podcast and FP podcast as well, plus links to iTunes, links to our Facebook discussion page. A great way to just come in and say hello and let us know what you're doing. Uh, All three shows are back now. 2015 is in full force. Three shows a week. FP cast Monday, Book Was Better Tuesday, Scar Joe a go-go Thursday. So, um, holy shit, you will hear a lot of my voice if you're that way inclined i'm sick of it i can't imagine how you guys feel don't abuse your muse and i will catch you next week she starts off really small and then she grows she grows she grows she grows let's see how far she goes scar joe go go